Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Professor Holger Offlerbach. Professor Offlerbach is Professor of Modern European History at the University of Leeds. He is without a doubt one of the leading historians dealing with the subject of the Great War, and today we're discussing his newest book, on the Knife's Edge, How Germany Lost the First World War, published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Professor. Welcome. Thank you very much. Professor, what is the thesis of your book? Uh, my book is a history on Germany during the First World War. We'll say the German society fighting the First World War and of the German war effort. And um, the the leading question is to analyze what the German society wanted to achieve by fighting this war, which became uh, even um, always growing hardship for everybody. So one question is, was Germany fighting, for example, for a European hegemony or for what were they fighting? And the second issue is uh, the war itself, the hardship it brought. The third issue is um, that the First World War was not lost for Germany um, basically from the beginning, which uh, while some historians claim that the big question of the First World War is not that Germany lost, but the question is only how Germany could um, hold out for four and a half years. And I claim that for a quite significant time, the First World War was a close-run thing and that the German leadership had to commit a lot of mistakes to lose it. And um, the history of how these mistakes were made is also one of the main arguments of my book. Now, why did... uh... Graf von Schlieffen opt to change the operational plans of Graf von Moltke the Elder? Well, um, Moltke's plans were defensive, so basically preparing um, the German Empire for a two-front war. And they were realistic, but it uh, was also kind of unattractive. You know, if you plan for a continental war and you really don't know exactly how you can end that. And this is basically what Moltke did. He said, we prepare for a defensive two-front war and um, how this ends remains kind of open because he said we don't, uh, we, uh, we cannot bring a decisive blow. We cannot do that. We can only fight for... Um, basically keeping things in the balance, making limited blows, hoping that the 
that the enemy will compromise at some point. Schlieffen offered um, a riskier strategy and developed it into a concept to make also a modern war more feasible with a kind of flank attack coming from behind, um, overflanking the enemy and um, making also a modern war with all the dangerous modern weaponry. Um, I would say he created the idea that it may be doable and winnable, both. And um, he was kind of brilliant in his field. And for that reason, he could create enthusiasm in, in the staff officers of the German general staff who basically then created this war plan, which is linked with Schlieffen's name. And here we have to mention that there are some historians who say there was no Schlieffen plan in the sense, but I think we we skip that for a moment now uh what were the tactical and operational assumptions did graf von schlieffen's plan of 1906 which was the final rendition of in terms of his um, uh, handiwork make which uh, subsequently became very problematic problematical i should say in practice well um, um uh, there was no final plan in 1906 because um, the war plans had to be revised uh, constantly. And um, there were, so Schlieffen um, in 1906 was um, uh, succeeded by, um, uh, by the younger Moltke, and the younger Moltke had then to, or more precisely the general staff, had to revise the war plans practically on an annual basis because the war plan was an extremely complicated um, product of, for example, um, supplying um, a, a multi-million man army, transporting them by railway to the German borders, assembly of entire armies at the borders, and um, organizing the supplies. And this in the pre-computer age meant that was a terrible amount of most detailed work to, to get all the railway transports organized. And so we had in 1906, the last, uh, of course, Schlieffen was um, relieved from his office. Moltke, the younger, took over. And um, the German general staff planning continued. And um, until 1914, it was um, permanently revised. And um, But the basic idea... Uh, building the German stronghold in the West and try to bring a quick decision in the West was not altered. Does that answer the question more or less? Yes, it does. Uh, would it be true to say that you do not agree with Fritz Fischer's thesis that the German Reich bore major responsibility for the outbreak of the Great War and instead you lean towards Sir Christopher Clark's thesis? Okay, so that is now um, a very complex question. So Fritz Fischer said that Imperial Germany um, had, a, had a hegemonic plan and a plan of conquest, and he um, published in his book um, 
countless German designs for um, conquest and hegemony. But I don't think that is, was the driving force of Germany starting the First World War. It was more um, diplomatic miscalculation. Um, what Christopher Clark said will say the powers sleepwalked into the war. Sounds a little bit like Lloyd George's uh, slithering into the war, even if Christopher Clark said that this was a um, um, stupid word from Lloyd George, that nobody's um, slithered into the war. But I don't see exactly where the difference is. And both of them uh, probably want to say that um, they, uh, the powers and, um, and the diplomats and the politicians saw the risks and still were um, deciding for war in a very complex and hasty decision-making process in summer 1914. And if you put a pistol on my chest, you click the trigger and you ask, are you now more on the side of Fritz Fischer or on the side of Chris Clark? Um, I would go for Chris Clark. Why was the Emperor William II a problematical leader for the German Reich during the war? Well, um, William II was not up to the task. So that is already uh, the simple answer. The German constitution gave the emperor a decisive role in deciding between um, the military and the civilian leadership of the empire and the civilian leadership did not have enough say over the military. So basically they needed the emperor and if the emperor was unable to fulfill this coordinating role, Germany was in trouble and the emperor was not able, despite all the theatrical um, speeches which she gave and uh, in which he presented himself as, a, as, a, um, as an kind of absolutist ruler of Germany, the emperor was not, um, was not able to to rule Germany or to, to coordinate German politics in a sufficient manner. And that led to chaos during the First World War. And um, I try in my book to be balanced. So I don't say that Wilhelm II always did terrible things because occasionally the, the Kaiser even made some okay decisions or some reasonable decisions and co occasionally was completely off. And uh, But in total, the Kaiser was inept. Why do you believe that the first battle of the Marne was not a major turning point in the war? Well, um, that is now an evaluation of um, of the existing um, literature on the topic. And um, I'm not alone with this assessment. Uh, for example, Martin van Krefeld, uh, the historians Martin van Krefeld or Hugh um, Strawn or David Stevenson and all of them are of the opinion that the German supply lines were hopelessly overstretched. So far that Hugh um, Strawn said, 
uh, in logistical terms, the Schlieffen plan was nonsensical. So that um, German troops needed railways to transport um, um, their provisions. And um, the German armies who were in northern France were already very distant from the railway end stations and had to transport then the stuff from from the from the railway by uh, with lorries or horse driven carriages um, to the armies. And uh, there was a logical end to that. And um, we don't know exactly what would have happened had German troops not retreated voluntarily during the Marne battle. Maybe they even would have won this engagement, but the most likely outcome for them not retreating would have been that they run aground maybe 50, 60 kilometers more at the south but because of logistical problems. And for that reason, I say that the Battle of the Marne was not the moment in which um, Germany um, gave away the victory in the First World War, because most likely the German troops would have run aground uh, more at the south, but they would have run aground. And already in the moment in which the Marne battle took place in September 1914, Troops at other parts of the front were already digging in. So, and um, does that answer the question? Yes, it does. Thank you. Thank you. Why was the Second Battle of Tannenberg a major German victory? And why was Paul von Hindenburg regarded as the victor as opposed to Erich Ludendorff? Okay, so um, you say the second battle of Tannenberg, this already links to um, the name of the battle, because um, the battle we are talking about in late August 1914 um, was not at Tannenberg, but it was named after Tannenberg, which was a medieval battle of the German knights, um, which the German knights lost in 1410. And they recalled it, um, uh, battle of Tannenberg as a kind of belated revenge for that battle, which is, of course, a historical anachronism, but it um, was ex uh, extremely good publicity for the battle itself, because Battle of Neidenburg, Ortelsburg or something like that would have had not the same sound. So, but this is now the name. The problem was that the German army was uh, in the West, and uh, only one army was left in the east to protect German territories against uh, the Russians, which um, um, moved forward much faster than expected, also because they were called in by the French to speed up. And to stop them, the Russians had basically two armies operating in eastern Prussia, and um, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, who were called to take over the command over the German army operating in eastern Prussia, came up with a kind of encircling plan. They encircled one of the two uh, Russian armies, uh, and the other army was unable to help because it was divided by by some lakes, we'll say they used very um, professionally, um, the particularities, the geographical particularities of Eastern Prussia. 
the German defenders had then a splendid victory and destroyed a Russian army. And the point why Hindenburg was considered the savior of Germany was that the Eastern Prussian population was indefinitely grateful because there were already hundreds of thousands of people on the move. They were fleeing from the Russians and um, that Hindenburg then was able to protect German territory against the preceding um, the advancing Russians um, was was considered to be a great relief and a turning point, and it was also the stunning victory which the uh, German army could not achieve in the West. Why was uh, von Falkenhayn chosen to succeed Graf von Molke the Younger as chief of the great general staff? Um, um, sorry, I, I did not get what what is this Falkenhayn and Moltke? What uh, why did he succeed? Okay, so why did he succeed? Um, the point, the cr crucial point was that Moltke was of bad health. You're already during the July crisis, during the first part of the July crisis, Moltke was on leave for health reasons. He was in Karlsbad. He, he, was, um, uh, he was a sick man. And uh, he was also a very ner nervous person. And when things did not move according to plan in mid-September 1914, it um, looked as if Moltke cannot do it. So basically, there was a moment of crisis. There was a mana battle. Moltke was overly nervous. And the person who had to decide over um, replacing the chief of staff was the emperor who could nominate and dismiss um, uh, the chief of staff and the chancellor and so on. This was also the, all the emperor's task. And the emperor was aided in this um, decision-making process by his military cabinet. And the head of the military cabinet was General von Lünker. And they had already uh, looked in early August for a potential replacement in case that Moltke, the younger, would not be able to do it. And um, they, they, they came up with Falkenhayn because Falkenhayn was by then Prussian minister of war. He was in the headquarters. He was familiar with the task because he was available and already in the German headquarter. And he was considered to be an extremely energetic commander. So they thought that probably Falkenhayn would be the best replacement in case that Moltke cannot do it. And in mid-September, it was um, definitely um, Falkenhayn's moment. And Wilhelm II also thought that Falkenhayn um, um, was one of the best generals of, of the German army. And he was deeply impressed by the person because Falkenhayn was a very elegant appearance and could also give excellent presentations. So he um, he was obviously outperforming in, for example, planning the strategic situation and could always impress the emperor with his detailed knowledge um, of military affairs. Uh, as a biographer of, of uh, Falkenheim, do you believe in retrospect that the decision was a correct one? 
Well, I am Falkenhans biographer, but um, not a hagiographical one. So I'm not saying that Falkenhayn was um, was a second Napoleon or something like that. Um, I have anyway difficulties to see a second Napoleon in the First World War. I see generals who may be better than others, but um, um, not this kind of brilliant commander. And Falkenhayn made too many mistakes in due course. Then I could claim that he was a brilliant commander because somebody who started the Battle of Verdun and who wanted to start the unlimited submarine warfare. Sorry, I cannot tell you this was a brilliant choice. We uh, we can say that Germany would have needed a um, commander um, with, with definitely more strategic wisdom. Falkenhayn um, Falkenhayn had his merits, so he was not a complete um, um, failure, not at all. He had also a kind of um, view of strategic balance and he had his merits and he did also a lot of uh, good um, strategic moves. But overall, somebody would have needed, been needed with, uh, with wider views. And the question is who? Because the problem, um, we had Molke the Younger, who was sick. We had Falkenhayn, his successor, and later Falkenhayn was replaced by Hindenburg and Ludendorff. And uh, this was definitely a fatal choice. These two, definitely not. But uh, I know, uh, by uh, because of my research, I know the, the German leadership of the First World War quite well. And if you were asking, was there another candidate who had the abilities to bring that war to a better conclusion, that would be very, very difficult. Because you see a lot of able generals, but none of them who is really, really um, a kind of brilliant mind who understands as we can say with hindsight, German strategic necessities. Probably the best of the crowd would have been Wilhelm Gröner, but he was far too junior by then. Uh, why did uh, Falkenheim decide to make Verdun the centerpiece of his attritional strategy in 1916, and why did it not succeed? You mean why did he attack in 16 and not 15? Well, why did he make Verdun the centerpiece of his attritional yes. strategy, and why did uh, it not work? Uh, well, um, the point was, um, if we go through the First World War, and uh, in 1915, Falkenhayn was able to stabilize the German situation. So there was a two-front war, similarly as it was planned from Moltke the Elder, and Germany was able to hold its ground on both fronts on the east and on the west, but it was not able to bring, to make a decisive blow, despite the fact that many generals um, still thought Germany could do it. And this is one of Falkenhayn's uh, merits, that he was very realistic about that. And he said, Germany is not strong enough to deliver a decisive blow. We cannot do it. So he, he stuck with that. 
but he was able to stabilize the fronts in the West in 1915. The Western allies were attacking, but without success and big losses. And in the East, the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians were able to defeat the Russians so that the Russians had to give up Russian Poland and looked as if they were pretty much knocked out for the rest of the war. Still, you know, still fighting, but losing a lot of um, their fighting power. And Falkenhayn thought, um, because he always pressed also for political solutions of the war, which was another benefit of this commander, another merit, that he pressed for political solutions and said, we have to try to find a political way out. But there was no political way out because uh, German diplomacy was not able to deliver. It was also a hard call. Um, because the enemy was not um, ready to negotiate. The Germans made, for example, a lot of peace offers to Tsarist Russia, but Tsarist Russia refused. So basically, Falkenhayn uh, was then in the unenviable position that he had to end a war, despite the fact that he himself had said, um, we don't have the means to end the war with military power because our military power is not sufficient to to create a victory over all of our enemies, but still he had to try. And for that reason, I call um, uh, this chapter in my book um, Squaring the Circle, basically something impossible. He was in front of a possible strategic task. If you know you don't have the force to to achieve victory, but uh, still uh, achieving victory is the only way out, you are at a loss. And so he came up with this idea to attack Verdun. And uh, in my opinion, Verdun was an attempt to use the particularities of trench warfare to end um, of the particularities of, of, of the place of Verdun to create a situation where the French would be forced to attack in French warfare and the Germans were in the role of defenders and could create enormous losses for the French. And this was supposed to work that way, that he wanted to conquer um, the East Bank um, in front of Verdun, um, um, a series of hills, post-artillery in front of Verdun, shoot in, into the city and forcing the French or to give up the city or to start a counter-offensive. And this counter-offensive would have been for, for, for the French an uphill battle. We'll say something coastly. Falkenhayn wanted to force the French to sustain enormous losses and to um, come to the point that they have to compromise. And he hoped in this complicated um, um, planning that maybe the uh, the British will have to attack on the Western Front as well to help the French once the French are in um, in trouble because of uh, their efforts in Verdun. The reason that it did not work was that to make this mechanism work, Germany needed these hills in front of the city. And Falkenhayn did not give enough forces to this attack to conquer the hills, and they conquered only half of the hills. And then they tried to repair the mistake, 
And it was immediately a strategic um, quagmire and complete disaster because then German and French troops were fighting under terrible conditions and both of them had more or less the same losses. But Falkenhayn overestimated the French losses throughout his tenure and thought that the French may um, may at the end of the day um, be still significantly weakened, even if Germany had to pay a much higher price than he originally thought they had to pay. And that was, in my eyes, the reason for uh, for the attack of Verdun and also the reason why it backfired and um, became this battle of attrition, which we know. How important an influence on German strategy was the so-called turn-up winter of 1916-1917? Well, the turnip winter was of um, utmost importance. Uh, the turnip winter was caused by um, a poor harvest. So in Germany, um, foodstuff had to be rationed during the First World War, increasingly rationed, and there was anywhere downward spiral. But until spring 1916, um, the food um, the food situation in Germany was good enough, not brilliant, but good enough. The, um, uh, the poor harvest of 1916 led to increasing shortages and, um, and, um, and the calories which you get on the uh, official ration card went um, in the winter below 1,000 calories a day. And so definitely not sufficient. And that brought in Germany um, kind of outburst of despair that um, because there were two contradicting elements in the war. The first one is um, you have this massive home front issue that you don't know anymore how to f uh, uh, how to supply a national um, food to your starving population and to the army. On the other hand, military situation was quite brilliant because in 1916, um, the Allied powers had attacked on all fronts, on the Somme. The British and the French had attacked on the Somme. Um, the Russians had attacked against the Austro-Hungarians, um, made the Brusilov offensive. Um, the Italians had attacked at the Isonzo, the Romanians had entered the war, and still the central powers were able to, to stop all these attacks and to stabilize the fronts and even to conquer Romania and uh, or the biggest part of Romania. So militarily, they were in a brilliant, uh, quite brilliant position. But they said, where's the point if we have at the end to surrender because our internal situation um, is so fragile because of um, the question of nutrition, um, we, we need a quick end to the war. And this time pressure, which was created by the internal situation, led to the most dramatic strategic mistake of Germany during the First World War, which was a um, decision of unlimited warfare uh, submarine warfare against um, um, against Britain in the hope to be able to force the British out of the war within six months, but in reality bringing um, the Americans in. 
And Winston Churchill had made the claim that Germany uh, or the First World War, there were six weeks between victory and defeat because German declaration of unlimited submarine warfare started on the 1st of February 1917. And if they had waited until mid-March 1917, the first Russian revolution had started. The Tsar had to abdicate and it uh, looked increasingly as if Russia will collapse. And with the collapse of Russia and the Americans not in, the First World War would have been, um, as far as we can say, would have been a draw. Uh, following from that, so you would say, in, in effect, that the decision to go ahead with unrestricted uh, submarine warfare was a case of a policy of Vabank. Yes, it was caused by despair. It was caused by the Navy promising. It was kind of very complicated um, calculation. So um, that is another thing in my book that I try to show that um, intelligent people can make idiotic decisions. So it's very easy to say uh, Imperial German leadership was idiotic to make the submarine warfare and um, every cab driver would tell you that. So basically you don't need a particular um, um, insight to say the decision had was idiotic and had uh, disastrous consequences for Germany. But the task is to, to look how, if you consider that these people may not be completely incompetent, if you think they are all idiots, it's easy to explain. If you think these people were reasonably competent, why did they do it? And then you see the sheer despair on the one hand, which puts enormous pressure on the decision maker, the sheer public despair about the food situation. And then you have the Navy. The Navy is um, the Navy leadership is under enormous pressure from from the under, from their underlings, activists who say that the Navy has to contribute something to the struggle of the fatherland and so on. And they came up with an elaborated plan. This elaborated plan was that they had called in um, civilian specialists, for example, grain traders, who, who were, had a, a lot of knowledge about grain trade and international shipping and so on. And they calculated how big is a, um, um, a British merchant navy and how much of this merchant navy is needed um, for war purposes to transport and, um, and troops and supplies and how big is, uh, is a navy, um, is a merchant navy to supply Britain and how much can we sink if we go over to unlimited submarine warfare. And then because there was also a poor harvest in Britain and they have to import um, um, grains from overseas, from Argentina, from Australia and so on. So they need much more shipping than normal. And then um, it looked as if um, there is a kind of opportunity to destroy British um, logistics to um, to sink enough ships so that Britain cannot anymore supply its population so that Britain has to compromise.
politically. So basically that was a, a calculation and they came up with it and it looked as if it is um, kind of, uh, it looks very professional if you see it. So there the, the were people making mistakes who still were experts in their field. And this makes uh, makes it more explainable, even if uh, there were also in the time many people who said it is a terrible mistake and stood with it. Bethmann Holwig, the chancellor, was of the opinion that it was a mistake. His deputy, Karl Helferich, was of the opinion that it was a mistake. Max Weber, as a public intellectual, was of the opinion that it was a terrible mistake. And we had also in the time many people who said it is a mistake and it remains a mistake. But um, the, the, the reasons why the mistake was made can be explained. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Professor, but I don't believe you, you employ in the book the term the silent dictatorship. If that is the case, why don't you do so? So um, um, you mean the silent dictatorship, Martin Kitchen's book? And um, I don't use it, indeed. Um, you're right. I'm not, or maybe I, of course, I know the book, and um, it has also its merits. Uh, the point is that I um, I have in my book, um, I explain how um, the decision-making process in Imperial Germany worked. And the decision-making process of Imperial Germany was, you know, if you think that Imperial Germany was a kind of imperialistic machine who wanted to conquer Europe. And then you have this kind of idea that there's a, there's a kind of hierarchical structure and all the Kaiser or Hindenburg and Ludendorff, the silent dictators, are basically um, in command and uh, deciding uh, what is uh, what to do. And instead of that, I use um, the explanatory model by Hans-Ulrich Wehler, German um, social historian, who speaks about Imperial Germany uh, being uh, um, uh, led by power centers, by competing power centers. We'll say the emperor and the court, um, um, the, um, the general stuff. Um, the, the Navy, um, the Parliament, um, the Reich Chancellor and, uh, and the Foreign Office. And these polls were kind of competing in the decision-making process. And even in a situation where the military had the upper hand because they said, we don't know a way out except military victory. Then, of course, the military has always a kind of preponderance because they have to deliver it. But still, I think silent dictatorship goes too far, to, to use this term. And I have very good sources to um, support me because Hinden, uh, Ludendorff himself denied that he is a dictator. He denied that to his um, surroundings by the military who pushed him. Uh, to, he denied that to Walter Rathenau, for example. And um, he always said that people are vastly overestimating um, his influence also and also his possibilities. And I agree with him in this point. 
despite the fact that I don't deny that um, Hindenburg and Ludendorff had very great influence. But having very great influence does not mean that I am a dictator. Why did Ludendorff gamble on a decisive victory on the Western Front in the spring of 1918? And were there any plausible alternatives? Um, good question. Um, the point is um, that in late 1917 and early 1918, the strategic situation for Germany looked pretty good. And the following things had happened. The first one, the second Russian revolution had taken place. Lenin came to power in Russia and he started his, um, uh, his time in government with starting immediately peace negotiations with, uh, with the central powers and they took place in Brest-Litovsk. So basically the Eastern Front, um, Uh, there was still an Eastern Front, uh, there were, but there was an armistice and um, the military situation looked much better for Germany. Romania also asked um, for an armistice. This was the second um, military good news. The third one, a major victory against Italy at Caporetto in um, autumn 1917, so that the Italians looked very close to collapse. And, um, but still, the question was how to continue now the war, how to bring that to an end. And uh, there was a certain tendency to think in the German society that, um, you know, to believe in German military superiority and to think that now after defeating the Russians and after defeating the Italians, something like that may also be possible in the West now that Germany could really focus its entire military strength on the West. There were many people believing it and they were underestimating um, the extreme difficulty Of, um, of winning on the Western Front, which is also proven by the fact that in 1915, 16, 17, the Western Allies had tried attacks on the Western Front and they had failed because on the Western Front you did not have um, the sufficient uh, su uh, superiority to, to be able to manage a breakthrough. And... Um, The alternative would have been to try or to try peace negotiations, and they tried. And also in January 1918, there were the speeches by Lord George and uh, also Woodrow Wilson with the 14 points. And uh, the German leadership even tried somehow, albeit lukewarm, to embark on Wilson's 14 points by then. But it led nowhere because Wilson stopped any public conversation about that. And um, they um, also um, invited the Western powers to participate in the peace conference in Brest-Litovsk. And the Western powers did not show up, of course. And so it seemed that the enemy is uncompromising and the best way for generating a quick peace 
would be military victory. And in early 1918, this is, was a hold um, um, assumption in Germany and also Austria-Hungary. So basically two points. The first one, the enemy is uncompromising. The second one, uh, military victory is possible. And then if you put that together, you have um, a certain tendency to try it in the West. And um, Ludendorff embarked on that, and he was not alone in believing it. And uh, he had even serious, um, strong doubts. And for that reason, he had designed this attack as a kind of sequence of offensives. So basically making one big blow, and uh, if it does not get through, preparing a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth, all that was already factored in. And this was what happened in, uh, in 1918. He delivered one blow after the next, making the German army always weaker. And at the end, in July 1918, the German army was so weakened that then the Allies could um, start a counteroffensive, and the German army by then was not any more able to stop that. In uh, literature dealing with the Allies' side of the Great War, there is in the year 17, and particularly 1918, a great deal of reference to the so-called learning curve thesis, particularly in the, one, in the so-called 100 days at the end of the war. Uh, is there a similar uh, variable in, in the case of the German army during the Great War? Yeah. So um, um, I know the learning curve um, um, thesis um, is, is, um, is a beloved topic among uh, British military historians, especially um, in Birmingham. And uh, they love to show that the British army uh, became good and better during the First World War. And in 1918, they exceeded the German masters, so to say. So the Germans, the best at the beginning of the war, and, uh, and then the learning curve. And um, the British um, became the best. And in my eyes... Um, I see it slightly differently because I think that there was a learning curve on all sides, as well as where, you know, um, um, war does not make an army automatically better. It makes it worse normally. And uh, there was where and on all sides and there were also um, improvements, tactical improvements, better equipment, better tactics. There were also on the German army, um, they made a lot of improvements to an extent that um, Ludendorff's manual for the Western Offensive in 1918 was then copied word by word by the Americans. And um, at the end, when the Americans in September 1918 started their own attacks, they used German uh, translated manuals. So there was a learning curve on all sides. But what really made a difference is that um, uh, the Americans sent a multi-million army to France in 1918. And I don't think the 100 days would have been possible without 2 million American troops being in northern France. 
that would have uh, was a difference because if the Americans had not been there and um, and um, the 1918 events would have been a fight between the Germans on the one hand and the British and the French on the other hand, it would have ended undecisively with a, with a complete exhaustion of all sides. But that uh, on the western side there uh, were two million fresh troops made the difference. And for that reason, I see the learning curve um, as an argument. Um, it, it must be surrounded by all these other arguments because um, taken alone, it does not make sense. Why did Ludendorff push for an immediate armistice in September 1918? Well, um, the, the immediate armistice um, was caused by um, the German army. In uh, Basically, in mid-July, there were um, light counterattacks, for example, and um, then the Black Day of the German army in August. And um, then they always thought, uh, Hindenburg and Ludendorff thought, that they can slowly retreat into the Hindenburg line. And the Hindenburg line was a formidable obstacle and to stabilize the front in the Hindenburg line. What happened was that the Hindenburg line was pierced. So the Western Allies were able to break through the Hindenburg line, which was already a sign of decreasing German morale and fighting power because uh, military experts were of the opinion that the Hindenburg line was so strong that um, if the defenders were um, as motivated as they, as they had been in 1917, it would have been probably impossible to break through. So the first thing that. And the second thing, um, Germany had weakened all other fronts to bring troops to the west to stabilize the fronts, and they had um, very much weakened the front in Bulgaria. So the, there was an allied bridgehead in Saloniki, and there was a strong army, a multinational army, and the Bulgarians had warned that half a division is not enough German assistance, and they needed more, and the German general staff said, we don't have more. And um, and when then a, um, a light attack started in Saloniki, they could break through the Bulgarian lines and the Bulgarians surrendered. And both events came at the same time. So the Bulgarians surrender on the one hand and um, um, the, the piercing of the Hindenburg line in the west. And in this moment, it became pretty clear that the game is up. Because the surrendering of Bulgaria meant that um, that the central powers lost the 500,000 man army. Point one, point two, that the Armée de, de Lorient uh, will say the international army in Saloniki was free to move all over the Balkan to um, to cut off the Ottoman Empire, so that the Ottoman Empire, who had suffered defeats anywhere in Syria, probably would surrender next and that Austria-Hungary would be threatened, and that probably Romania would resume hostilities. And um, also the German army in the West was uh, not knowing how to stop the enemy once it broke through the Hindenburg line. 
And so basically everything was coming together and then Ludendorff wisely said the game is up and we need an armistice now and the sooner the better. And he wanted an armistice um, which promised to give up, uh, for example, the, the enemy territories which were occupied by the Germans and the German troops retreating to the German borders. And when he understood that in the armistice negotiations, the Allied wanted to achieve much more, something um, on the level which was uh, basically indistinguishable from a normal surrender, then he wanted to resume fighting, but by then it was too late. Professor, if you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Well, um, there is um, a British politician whose name is Lord Lansdowne. And Lord Lansdowne said in, um, in a famous peace letter with, which was published in autumn 1917 that um, it was, uh, was necessary for, for the survival of Europe to try to find a political end to the war. And um, basically he suggested negotiating with the enemy. And he said that um, the wanton prolongation of a war is a crime differing only in degrees from the crime to start it. And um, this idea that only victory is a way to stop uh, such a war is an extremely costly idea which may things worse than trying to find a compromise. And um, I don't say this would have been a better world because I don't know and I cannot offer an alternative history. But what I can do is to ask the questions. Do we have to fight until victory in such a war or in wars general, in general? And does it really bring an advantage for victors and vanquished likewise? Because also the victors don't get out of the war, of the victory, what they hope they should get out of it. So that um, I call victory a kind of chimerical concept which creates illusions which it cannot deliver upon. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor, very much. Thank you.